1: I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth Podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. I am fresh off of Constitutional Law Camp. And what is that? Well, Patrick Henry College brings students who, there were about 55 of them today, ages 14 through 18, that we're learning about the fundamental principles of what makes America great. So joining me now in studio for the full hour to do a deep dive on the Constitution and also some recent Supreme Court opinions that you really need to know about is our good friend Mike Donnelly, who is a constitutional law attorney himself, he's the senior counsel for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Definitely watch our previous episode on homeschooling and everything that you can do to make sure that you are an equipped parent to homeschool. And he's also a professor at Patrick Henry College. So Mike, thanks so much for joining me again.
2: Oh, it's always a pleasure, Jenna. Great to be here with you.
1: Yeah, and these discussions I think are so informative. We've gotten such great feedback every time that you're on the show because a lot of Americans want to understand our constitution more in context. So first, talk to me about the constitutional law camp that was so much fun to talk to these students. I had a really great time.
2: Well, it's so great to have 55 young people uh, in a room to just talk about the Constitution for a week. And they're doing fun things as well. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, find that fun. And I, try I do to keep too. Them. I was like, wait,
1: that's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I try to
2: keep them entertained. Uh, and we're talking about the principles of government. We're looking at some, some uh, political philosophy, trying to help them understand the purposes of government, the foundations of government, the relationship between government and law and morality and worldview. These are things that I know you talk a lot about uh, here on your show, and trying to help them understand the history of our system of government. How did it start back in 1776? Of course, we have to go back even further than that, but we got it kicked off in 1776. And then going forward, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, understanding what did our founders do with the Constitution, how revolutionary were those ideas that they put into practice. You know, it was the first time, I think, in recorded history that people actually deliberatively sat down and said, what kind of government do we want? What is it going to look like? And they debated it for four months during the hot summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, and we're living with the results of it now. Maybe we can talk about that.
1: Yeah, and we are gonna be talking about that as a little preview for our Independence Day special. And so Mike is gonna join me uh, coming up this Monday on an Independence Day special that you don't wanna miss because we are going to do a deep dive into the history of America's founding. When we talk about the difference between constitutional law and the Constitution, there is actually a difference there because a lot of people talk about constitutional law, but what they mean by that are just the Supreme Court opinions that say that they interpret the Constitution correctly, but we know that sometimes the court gets it wrong. So what is the difference? What do you need to know about why we celebrate Independence Day? Why, Christy Nome should have those fireworks at Mount Rushmore, regardless of what Biden says. (laughs) We were talking about that earlier. So definitely tune in to Just the Truth at 6 p.m. this Monday. We're going to do a deep dive way more into that. But first, Mike, um, for the purposes of this show, we're also, we do want to get into constitutional law a little bit. And uh, we do want to talk about the opinions that are coming uh, out of the Supreme Court even as we speak. And so, one of the first ones that I find interesting, um, and actually several, that uh, even against what I think the liberals are trying to say, we've actually had some 9081 opinions. And so that, a lot of people are saying, undercuts this whole idea that the Democrats should pack the Supreme Court. I don't think they should anyway. But you had an interesting comment about the 8-1, 9-0 opinions versus why the Democrats are looking at packing the court anyway.
2: Well, I mean, 9-0, 8-1 decisions are not that unusual in the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court takes very often, takes very narrow issues that aren't always that controversial. It's the controversial ones, I think, that the Democrats are afraid of, you know, the Roe v. Wade cases, the moral cases, uh, maybe some speech cases, maybe cases like Citizens United and, and government funding and money and those kinds of things. But uh, oftentimes the court is pretty united on things. Uh, in, the, in the last few days, though, we've seen some very interesting constellations of justices appearing with, that surprised me. Uh, mm-hmm. Honestly. And of course, the, the case, the 8-1 case that maybe we're going to talk about is um, Mahoney versus BL, which was a free speech case.
1: Yes, and that one was an interesting 8-1 opinion. But before we jump into that, even today, you're talking, I love the term constellation of justices and some of their allegiances <laughs> depending on, I think that'll be a new constitutional law term we've coined now here on Just the Truth. Actually,
2: we have, to, um, we have to give the Supreme Court credit for that because in West Virginia v. Barnett, they talked about the, tr- the okay. true north constellation. Well, so that's where I did, pulled but that but out there from. There you
1: go. Okay, well, you coined it at least <laughs> maybe in this context. Okay. But uh, but they But in terms of their allegiances and who jumps on to what opinion on majority and dissent, the one today, actually that came out. That was what was surprising because uh, Kagan actually joined the constellation of what we would consider conservative justices and Alito jumped on somewhere else. So talk about that and why that's interesting.
2: Well, So that was Penn East and that's an eminent domain federal takings clause case regarding New Jersey and whether the federal government can authorize a private company to take, to exercise eminent domain over state land. Okay. But yes, this is very interesting, very important case. I think we need to talk about this and it just came out and I need to, I've read the opinion. I need to digest it even more, but justice Kagan joined justice Barrett, justice Gorsuch and justice Thomas. Now ordinarily you put Kagan over with the quote unquote liberals. Okay. And justice Alito joined justice Roberts with justice Breyer, justice Sotomayor. Okay. And you would usually put Alito with the conservatives. So What it, happened? It, well, it just, I don't know why Justice Alito did what he did. I'm tr- I've tr- he didn't write his own opinion. Right. We're going to have to mm-hmm. talk about that and figure it out. I don't understand it, but I, 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 I'm with Gorsuch and Barrett and Kagan.
1: Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and Kagan <laughs> going like, wait a second. But, but I think that the point here overall is that rather than just saying, oh, whatever opinion a particular justice holds, that must be the right one. So in some of these, you actually have to look at the opinion and make sure, even if you're not a lawyer, look at the opinion, look at the holding, read through some articles on it from people you trust, like maybe Mike Donnelly, tune into Just the Truth here, and look for yourself rather than just be uh, only about these types of opinions and who is aligning with who. So we're going to talk more about the Supreme Court when we come right back with Mike Donnelly here on Just the Truth. Welcome back to Just the Truth. And we're continuing the conversation tonight that's a deep dive into the Supreme Court, some recent opinions with my good friend and constitutional law attorney and professor, Mike Donnelly. So, Mike, uh, before the break, we were talking about these constellations of justices. I'm totally going to continue using that term now. But, um, but we were talking about how some, uh, in some people's minds, of course, and I think in basically the American parlance, we categorize justices mm-hmm. either conservative or liberal and say we have a majority of conservatives now in the Supreme Court, Why is that, that we categorize our justices this way? Because I thought they were all supposed to be unbiased.
2: Or impartial, right? Exactly, I mean, of course we know better, and and that's why we had the drama and the trauma of three Supreme Court justices uh, under Trump, and of course the worst of them all was Justice Kavanaugh, who was just absolutely treated in scurrilous fashion by uh, the opposition. And then uh, Justice Barrett, of course, you know, was treated a little bit better, but everybody was wringing their hands on the left about, oh, Justice Barrett, and now we're going to have, oh, there's a arch conservative or conservative majority, a six-three rock solid conservative majority on the court.
1: Mm-hmm. This is what and, and Schumer going out and saying, I'm talking to you, Kavanaugh. I'm talking to you, Gorsuch. I mean, that that was terrible uh, as well. But yeah, I mean, it's talking specifically to justices, assuming in that context that they were going to rule a certain way on an abortion-related
2: opinion. Well, that's what they assumed, right? And we, right. we will see because there is an abortion case coming and we'll see what, what the justices do. We don't know what they'll do. We all have our ideas and our hopes about what they may or may not do. Um, but, you know, they all said, oh, it's a 6-3 solid, you know. And, of course, you know, you can't count on Justice Roberts to be an arch-conservative. He's not. Um, you know, you look at Justice Alito. He was on the Penn East, you know, case on the side of the taking people. and so we were just
1: talking about. We were about just insurance.
2: talking about Justice yeah. Kagan. And then... Uh, Others, but, you know, they often look at it as to who appointed them. And they assume, well, if it's a Republican who appointed them, they're conservative. It's a Democrat who appointed them, they're, they're liberal. Of course, you know, you look at Justice Souter uh, and, and Justice Kennedy, Kennedy. Yeah. okay, who would be examples against those ideas. Uh, who moderated and some you know said went liberal on the conservative side, and others said, oh, they came to our side, whatever. Uh, and so what you've got right now is you've got, a, a, you've got nine justices who bring their own points of view to a variety of things, and that, that's what we've seen in the most recent cases, um, and especially this one on the takings clause. I mean, I think this puts a very interesting issue about state sovereignty, about the republic. I was reading Justice Gorsuch's opinion about the two different kinds of sovereign immunity. They, I mean, they're talking about what was going on, in the summer of 1787 when the states got together in Philadelphia and did they give up certain things? I love it. This is great. It's, it's a great teachable moment for anybody who's paying attention.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> what, what then was in that case when we're talking about sovereign immunity, when we're talking about takings? Unpack that a little bit for the non-lawyers.
2: Right, well, so, so when the states came together in 1787, it was after we had the Articles of Confederation which were signed in 1777 by the states. And it was having some problems. You know, each state had their own currency. I mean, imagine going from New Jersey that might use Spanish doubloons or dollars to uh, you know somebody using the British pound and trying to exchange and transact. So it was difficult. They were making trade deals with each other. They were squabbling over who owned this land and who got all the land to the west. You know, Virginia versus Pennsylvania, and and so the founders were concerned about it. uh, And they said we got to do something different. So they got together in the Constitutional Convention and they came up with the Constitution. In the Constitution, there is the Bill of Rights, which came afterwards. And the uh, Fifth Amendment, I believe, that says the government can take money, but it can't do it unless there's just compensation. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's called eminent domain. Mm-hmm. So Take property. Take property. I'm sorry, I said take money. Take property from people mm-hmm. without uh, giving mm-hmm. them compensation. Right. right. So this case, the Penn East case, is about whether a federal agency can authorize a private company building a pipeline to act as the federal government in exercising eminent domain and to take New Jersey's property from them without their consent. Okay.
1: Fascinating. So I mean so this yeah. is the federal government authorizing a private entity, to go in and take land that belongs to the state. Correct. Because usually, I mean, a lot of the eminent domain cases that probably a lot of people are aware of deal with private property being taken by the government and then having that sort of taking. And so this is a really interesting transaction.
2: Well, it is. And and always has to be, the taking always has to be for a public purpose, right? But the issue that Justice Gorsuch and the dissent that Justice Kagan joined was about sovereign immunity. Because when the state's entered the Articles of Confederation and fought together, they came as sovereign entities. And, you know, and what Justice Gorsuch said is they didn't give up their structural immunity. Okay, there was this idea of structural immunity which came with them into the Constitution, but then you also have this other item which is called the 11th Amendment, which says that private citizens of another state cannot sue, or the federal courts do not have jurisdiction over lawsuits of private citizens against states or foreign citizens against states, because states are sovereign entities and they can decide whether or not they're gonna be sued. Okay, so it seems like either one of those would deal with this issue, and that's what Justice Gorsuch says. He says, and that's all we need to hear because he's a textualist, which is good in most mm-hmm. cases, most yeah. cases, and an And we've
1: forgotten this whole idea that states actually do have sovereignty, and we have this whole idea that because we're all the United States of America, that somehow the federal government should just deal with everything. And if you have a problem in your state, go to Congress. And we have forgotten this principle. So that's Justice Gorsuch saying, wait a minute, let's go back to the history. Interestingly, Kagan joins this. But what was the holding from the majority then in this case?
2: Well, the majority basically said, uh, there's, there's an implicit.
1: Ha! Ah, we love when they use that This
2: term. is Justice Roberts. Yeah, okay? of course. Yes, everything's not everything, but there's a lot of implicit things in his mind apparently, including Obamacare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah I can't but, let that go. It, anyway. Uh, a but, lot of us. Yeah, have, yeah. Okay, but but he said it's implicit implicit in the plan of the Constitution that and he the can states just
1: infer that somehow by his magical you know magic eight ball going back and going oh yeah. I can see what they meant by this.
2: Well, he goes back and he does some historical analysis and he says, well, there's always been this thing called eminent domain and, of course, the states knew about it and, you know, the, the state, this federal government is superior to the states and Our it's implicit. Or long
1: history and tradition.
2: Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, we can debate that. But Justice Gorsuch does the same thing and he says, well, no, hang on, there was a the sovereignty in states. You know, you can't just take property from states. And this is concerning mm-hmm. because if they can authorize a private entity to do this, what can't they do? And could the federal government just come in and, like, yeah. you know, for public purpose, At just take the whole state end? of New Jersey? Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> and and basically, yeah, and and federalize. I mean, that seems a little crazy, especially in the current context of, you know, when we're talking about D.C. statehood and some of these other things, you know, that have practical implications. And so, so the majority then, which Alito, interestingly, joined on to. So what was their rationale for saying that this is OK other than, I mean, was it just the implicit nature of? Yeah.
2: It was really that it was really that just that he said Congress has passed a law that authorizes this and the states knew that, you know, they, they submitted to the Constitution which gives the federal government this eminent domain power and of course it's implicit in this hierarchical understanding mm-hmm. that of course the federal so- government can take the land. and so if they- Congress
1: can legislate on it. And so therefore, and this is what the Supreme Court does so often, is they will go back to, well, Congress can do this and they will go to the legislation and derive an opinion on the Constitution without even really contemplating it. Just saying, well, there's this provision and because Congress has interpreted it this way, then therefore we're bound by that, which is interesting to me as a, as a precedent problem to say that because, because honestly, when Congress and their legislation is in conflict with the Constitution, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So they shouldn't just look to Congress for interpretation and basically being able like being able to derive whatever rule Congress prefers.
2: Absolutely, and and I like what Justice Gorsuch does in his in his dissent because he writes separately from the from the other dissent that he joined, which was written by Justice Barrett who talks about the same thing but he but he's talking to the circuit court here because the supreme court is sending this back to the circuit court and he says look, circuit court, you can't ignore these things that I'm talking about, even though they weren't raised by the parties in their pleadings. Okay, so he's trying to talk to the judges there and say, hey, by the way, here's this thing, you need to (laughs) take this into consideration. So I hope they will take it into consideration because the court reversed and remanded, so there's going to be further uh, argument on this. But I think people really need to be talking about this. This Mm -hmm. This issue of state sovereignty is right on the table, as the federal government has become so powerful, too powerful, in my opinion, um, and the states are looking at ways to kind of push back. Yeah. And this is one area.
1: And these are things where for all of the people who are really concerned about the direction of our country, how do we solve all of the problems of you know, the Washington swamp and all of these things? It's fascinating to me that in the news, we're really not talking about this. I mean, you have the article saying, oh, this opinion happened, but this isn't the top trending headline right now. You know, mm-hmm. This isn't something that people are getting this type of analysis. And that's actually really frustrating. I think that there are so many other distractions in the mainstream media. And when we as citizens want to make sure that our rights are preserved, that the constitution as a whole and how it was originally intended is preserved, which includes state sovereignty, we have to be more aware of these things. So for people who are wanting to engage on this more and they're actually listening to this going like, wow, Mike, thank you, I would never have known this. How do they go and read some of these Mm. opinions and actually become more educated on these things without being, you know, at constitutional law camp?
2: Well, that's a great question. Well, so SCOTUSblog.com is a really good place to go to just if you want to track what's happening with the Supreme Court, what they're doing. SCOTUSblog is a a great resource. Um, I like to go to Oyez, uh, O-Y-E-Z, .org, which is the Supreme Court's website, and they post the opinions there. Every opinion has a syllabus. It's called a syllabus, which is not written for the layman, but it's pretty accessible to the layman, and it's a short synopsis of the key points of the case. And so you can go there to Oyez and click on the case opinion link. Figured out which link that is. You can Mm -hmm. poke around a little bit. And then read the syllabus, and that will explain the case. And don't forget the dissent, especially when it's Justice Thomas or (laughs) Justice Gorsuch. They write great dissents. And in this case, Penn East— Uh, Justice Gorsuch's um, dissent is extremely digestible. It's very interesting, very good, explains what his issues are. Uh, and, and I, you know, it's great,
1: it's good. Yeah, and I think that's really good advice, and especially for people when you hear that the Supreme Court has issued an opinion, go and read that first, before you read the National Review's take, or the, you know CNBC, or the top trending headline, because that's generally from a reporter who may not even be a lawyer, but typically it's a perspective. And if you look at the headlines, and you look at, oh, the Supreme Court smacked down this, it's a perspective. Go and read this first, be informed, and then draw your opinion and conclusion. So, we'll be right back with more on Just the Truth. Welcome back to Just the Truth, and I'm continuing my conversation with my good friend Mike Donnelly, who is a constitutional law professor at Patrick Henry College and uh, is also the senior counsel at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Again, make sure that you go back and watch our special our one hour deep dive on homeschooling i'm a homeschool graduate it was a great conversation so mike uh, before the break we were talking and then during the break i was actually uh, looking at um at all of these headlines because we were talking about this takings case that just came out today and i was like this is nowhere in media and even the few that obviously they report on supreme court um, opinions but i went and roberts is trending currently on twitter and this is you know 6 26 p.m eastern uh, but it's interesting because in the top hits on this Uh, They're just talking about, oh, this means that the last decision day will be two outstanding cases on campaign finance and voting rights. So just brushing past this takings case as if it's not important. And then the Reuters headline, which should just be straight reporting. Here's their headline, and this is why I'm telling you guys, you gotta go and read the opinion for yourself. Don't just take the headline as gospel on what the uh, the opinion actually held. So the Reuters headline is, U.S. Supreme Court backs pipeline companies in New Jersey land dispute.
2: Which is true, they did, because they, they voted for this private entity to be able to take New Jersey land now, New Jersey's against the pipeline, mm-hmm. and I don't even know why. I mean, uh, maybe they're environmentally concerned. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't like pipelines. I mean, you got the Keystone Pipeline that President Biden canceled. You know, we. we I mean, pipelines are important,
1: mm-hmm. uh, but this <laughs> frames the issue in an interesting way
2: it, it really does it really does so pipe we need pipelines to move fuel like we just all put up with gas issues like what a month or so ago when the mm-hmm. hackers hacked into the pipeline company and it everybody was concerned you saw people going to the pumps pouring gas into plastic bags and everything which makes me like wow okay yeah. anyway but so we need pipelines to move stuff safely but still people don't like pipelines in some respects um, but it, on the other hand, you, you know, states need to be able to make decisions for themselves and be able to resist encroachment by the federal government for whatever reason. Maybe you like pipelines. I don't know if I like pipelines or not, but I know what I do like is I like states being able to push back against the federal government because the federal government has become too big, too powerful in all of its entities, including the Supreme Court. And, uh, and, and here you got the Supreme Court saying, yep, Congress legislated. They can authorize a private entity to take state land and, That violates structural immunity and the 11th Amendment, and that's not okay.
1: And what I think, though, is interesting about this conversation with the Reuters headline, though, is that you don't get any of that with the headline that they generated. Because when they're saying U.S. Supreme Court backs pipeline, it almost frames it in a way that is not about takings. It's not about anything about the Constitution. It's saying, oh, the Supreme Court is in favor of pipelines. That's what you get from that headline.
2: Yeah, they could have said uh scotus opposes new jersey in takings case yes or you know rules that new jersey land can be taken right? right how you frame something is very important that's a good point i was just talking with the con law campers today at patrick henry college by the way if people are looking for a place to send their children patrick henry college good college uh,
1: <laughs> you will get mike as a professor <laughs> you might get me as a yes. professor i
2: sometimes teach i'm not a full-time professor there but but uh, but i was saying you know people use words and phrases for reason, because everybody has an opinion, everybody has a perspective, and they always want to try to influence people to think something one way or the other, which you'd like to see the media being a little bit less biased or unbiased or neutral and trying to just report the news. Uh, But as you pointed out, Reuters is spinning it, trying to make the Supreme Court into the big bad anti-environmental pipeline backers, which doesn't really communicate what's going on
1: right at all and it doesn't communicate the crux of the case and this is why it's so important for every informed citizen to do their own research to look at what did the supreme court actually say don't take reuters or you know these journalist activists perspective for it and don't just read the headline go and read the source material for yourself if you can and if you still have questions you know Great. You can always, you know, look up uh, the terms that are the legal terms or, you know, or have some other opinion, but at least then you've read the source material, you have the best evidence in front of you, and then you can go read people's opinions about it. And speaking of free speech, um, so that becomes a, uh, and people's opinion, that was the eight to one decision that I want to talk to you about as well, because this one was fascinating. This was the cheerleading case. Uh, So this was where a cheerleader went on her own. I think it was Snapchat. And uh, she did not make a uh, varsity. She was on junior varsity at her high school for cheerleading. So she went and had, um, you know, a couple of very choice vulgar words and some um, opinions of her own that she expressed on her own social media. And the, uh, the school then cut her or suspended her, I think, for a year mm-hmm. uh, from junior varsity for that content. And the, the case, it was very interesting to me, the 8-1 opinion, because we are all as conservatives in general, advocates of free speech. Everybody's like, "Oh, good! Supreme Court backs cheerleader." That was the headline. In right? free speech in case. In free right? speech case. We all love and, free speech. And everybody's, "Yay!" You know, look at how overwhelming this was. The lone dissenter, Thomas. He's
2: not. He's not. Uh, he's not uh, unused to being the lone <laughs> dissenter. I <think> Unfortunately, he... <laughs> yeah.
1: He's he's a great jurist, but this to me, when I saw Thomas is the one who's dissenting in a free speech case what's going on
2: well it's very interesting uh justice thomas i have great regard for justice thomas and i want to just stop for a second and go back one step because to understand this case you have to you have to also understand this point how in the world is the supreme court of the united states even making rules about free speech cases in public schools in mahoney school district which i think is in pennsylvania um is that what the founders wanted for the supreme court to be policing cheerleading squads and Snapchat pictures? I don't think so. Okay, so how do we get there? It's called incorporation. It's the incorporation doctrine, invented by the Supreme Court, and I was a little disappointed that Justice Thomas didn't even nod his head at that, much in his opinion, at all. He talked about this doctrine of in loco parentis. He did talk about the 14th Amendment also, which is where the incorporation doctrine was
1: Derived. Spawned. It was inferred spawned. Can I use from, can we go "spawned"? Back in, can yes. I say anyway? Yes. It was
2: was was inferred? Was discovered yes. decades after, kind of, you know. And, the
1: legal and, fiction was generated. Well,
2: so incorporation, and it was actually free speech, that was one of the very first rights of the Bill of Rights that was incorporated under the substantive uh, under the incorporation doctrine that the Court created in a case called Gitlow out of New York, which was a political speech case. Um, mm-hmm. At any rate. So this idea of incorporation is the idea that because the 14th Amendment says no state shall deny a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, okay? And so what the court has done is they've taken that word liberty and they've tried to define it. And in Gitlow, they said, well, if if freedom means anything, it certainly means freedom of speech. And the founders thought that because they included the First Amendment, freedom of speech clause in in the Constitution. And so we're going to apply that to the states, okay? And that didn't begin it, but that was one of the big ones where they started incorporating. And since then they have continued to incorporate, incorporate, incorporate virtually all, but not all, of the Bill of Rights into the Due Process Clause to apply to the states. Like, one we like, Second Amendment, right? We like that the Second Amendment, according to Justice Scalia, applies to the states by virtue of substantive due process. And so that's kind of been the case. And it almost is like a Don Quixote mission to even be talking about this, because it's like, Everybody accepts this and they go along with it. Um, and Didn't I'm we just, say
1: it's super precedent. It's,
2: <laughs> maybe, we, maybe, maybe it is, but I don't like it. Right. And anyway, so that's why we're talking about free speech <laughs> and the Supreme Court getting involved in deciding whether a cheerleader's Snapchat picture violates the U.S Constitution, which I don't think the framers had any clue that that would ever happen. technology, development, you know, notwithstanding. So in this case, the cheerleader, she 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 was mad at getting cut. She posts this picture, and uh, the majority says, "You can't restrict the, this cheerleader. She's got free speech rights." Okay.
1: This isn't in class, you know. This is outside.
2: This was outside, right? Mm-hmm. So it was outside, and so what Justice Thomas did. Here's what he did. He went back to the Fourteenth Amendment and said, "What did the people who framed the Fourteenth Amendment think?" About the doctrine of in loco parentis at the time they ratified the 14th Amendment. Now, I don't know that the framers of the 14th Amendment thought anything about in loco parentis, so he right. wasn't asking. Which is
1: not technically it, in there. This is a doctrine uh, that has been derived from the Supreme Court, so thus, constitutional law versus the Constitution.
2: Exactly, exactly. But he, you know, that's context and understanding mm-hmm. the original. Legislative intent. history,
1: all Legislative of that. Legislative
2: history, the yes. original intent, the time. What was it? What did that mean? Because in loco parentis means in the place of the parent, mm-hmm. okay? And at the time, Schools stood in loco parentis for children, and they could smack them, they could send them to the woodshed, discipline them, because that's what parents could do, and the school stood in the place of the parents, and that was accepted, totally accepted. And so if somebody did something outside, spoke disrespectfully about a teacher outside of school, and there's a, actually a case on this from the Vermont Supreme Court, which is mentioned in Justice, one of the, either the majority or the dissent, I can't remember, um, about how that was totally understandable that the, the student could be disciplined for something they said outside of school.
1: Just like parents can discipline children out for statements they make outside the home.
2: Well, and that's what the majority said, right? So the majority said ordinarily the parents would discipline children for things that happen outside of school. True. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a lot of my favorite cases are mentioned which support the idea of parental rights. Wisconsin okay. v. Yoder, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, which says that the right of parents is without question, you know, und- fundamental, fundamental right of parents. So that's great to hear eight justices sort of talking about those kinds of things. Yes. Um, but 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 then they say that so they, so they say that is generally true. And therefore, the school is, is going to be limited both by free speech principles but also by this idea that it's really the parent's job to be doing that outside of school. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about Justice mm-hmm. Thomas's discussion a little bit. Yeah, after the and, break.
1: and and I think the uh, the inference there as well on parental rights, and if there's going to in future cases potentially be a clash between a minor's free speech rights over and above parental discipline, I wonder. I don't know. Well, we will be right back, and this is why this is so fascinating. It's always important to look at the constitutional law cases, how they impact you and your rights. So we'll talk more about this and much more when we come back on Just the back to Just the Truth. And I'm continuing the conversation with Mike Donnelly, who is a constitutional law professor at Patrick Henry College and also the senior counsel at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. And Mike, before the break, we were talking about uh, this case that dealt with the cheerleader and the free speech. And we kind of set this up to say, okay, here's kind of the world that the justices were uh, dealing in. So what is the analysis in terms of the Constitution? And did the eight get it right or Justice Thomas?
2: Well, I like Justice Thomas, and I like his dis- his uh, his decision. Um, I also like free speech, uh, I, you know. And so, the majority sets forth this three part test about well, parents generally are going to be responsible for policing speech, and when it's outside the school, the schools have less control. And, and they set up this vague three part test, which Justice Thomas says this is vague, mm. brothers and sisters on the court. You can't do this to the circuit courts. You need to give them definitive rules, if you're going to make a rule. And so he kind of criticizes them on that respect. But for him, it's actually pretty simple. He says, at the time, if we go back to the 14th Amendment, when this idea of of, of incorporation and stuff comes from, what did people think in loco parentis meant? And it surely meant that the schools had stood in the place of the parents. And at that time, there would have been no question. They didn't have cheerleaders back then, I'm pretty sure. But there would have been no question that it would have been okay for the school to discipline a student for something that happened outside of school, and because that was the, they had that power under this in loco parentis doctrine. And he says the court does not really explain why they're departing from that pretty well understood um, legal doctrine of in loco parentis, and the eight. I I don't know, I haven't fully digested the majority opinion yet to be able to understand what the reasoning was just as Breyer wrote it. But it's, you know, it's like we like free speech, you know, this speech didn't, it wasn't done at the school. It was done outside the school, and they talk about, yeah, but some speech, even though it's done outside the school, might impact the school. They said that um, this particular picture, which was deleted after like 24 hours, didn't cause a disruption at the school, although about 250 people saw it, and it caused a little bit of a flare-up because it got deleted and it resulted in this action. And they said, and so in this particular case, we're going to side with free speech.
1: But that goes directly into what Justice Thomas is saying of being very vague. So are they saying, you know, this is now situational, that some things, depending on the gravity of harm or implication or disruption of the school, that's how we're going to uh, decide these cases? I mean, I think I think Justice Thomas is absolutely right that this doesn't give a clear precedent. And so for all of us who say, you know, yay, we're free speech advocates at the same time. We should probably be concerned about how the precedent is set, and I mean, precedent and stare decisis and all these other things are um, interesting issues to contemplate anyway under constitution versus constitutional law. And we talked about that today too. Um, Let's just talk for a moment about the concept of judicial review.
2: Well, sure. Yeah, this idea of judicial review does the Supreme Court get to review laws and which laws, and then does it actually have the authority to strike down laws, which is? a little bit different necessarily than judicial review. I mean, the idea that courts have to review cases and make decisions is what courts are for. Nobody disputes that. But the question is, do courts sit as a super legislature with the authority to essentially act as a veto on state law. Now this isn't state law. This is the action of a public school in a town in Pennsylvania or wherever it is. I think it's Pennsylvania.
1: But even acting as 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 kind of a super legislature in designing this three-part test to say well, hey, you know, this is now the rule.
2: Well right? right. And so and so that's what they do. And so if they're going to sit as a super legislature, they ought to act legislatively, I suppose, and give clear rules that people can understand and apply, whether it's a school in, in a town in Pennsylvania or a legislature trying to figure out, can we pass this abortion law that restricts abortions this way or that way? Because in Roe v. Wade, the court said, we're going to supervise all of you states on any of your su- abortion laws. right? And that's the problem with substantive due process, which is where we get the abortion decision of Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. and incorporation, where we get this idea of the free speech, right? Because free speech is in the Bill of Rights. We incorporate it against the state's Substantive due process is the idea that the justices decide what rights are worthy of the highest level of protection as a fundamental right or not. Versus
1: procedural due process.
2: Versus procedural due process. But some you know, you know, some rights um, you know, might get less protection than others. And the justices have decided that they're the ones who are going to decide that. Mm-hmm. Okay? Which is a problem. Okay, so so that's substantive due process, and when they do that, they make decisions like Roe v. Wade, you know, which they claim to strike down laws in states regarding abortion back in 1972 or Or three, or
1: even in like Obergefell, saying that okay, we're going to strike down constitutional amendments, state constitutional amendments that specifically say that these states have declared by virtue of their own constitution, and they are state sovereigns to say we will only recognize. a marriage as between one man and one woman. And somehow, uh, the Supreme Court thinks that it can weigh in on that and strike down laws in 30, or constitutional amendments, rather, in 30 plus states. I mean, this is acting as a super legislature, rather than as the Constitution textually appears to, and again, this is the the controversy, is to say should we even have precedent or should a judicial opinion be only as to the parties and well, the case of Right, and the
2: idea of precedent being, as you know, Amy Coney Barrett has talked about, super precedent, which is unquestioned Supreme Court opinions, kind of like Brown v. Board of Education.
1: Right, that you're never going to go back and revisit because right. it's so well established. Right. Unlike Feinstein is saying, well, you know, Roe v. Wade. Well, no, there is still a national conversation over the morality of abortion and the the laws vary between the states clearly that's not super present it's being revisited right now
2: correct exactly and so she right coined that term and so so you know again but the question is do we as a people want to continue to put up with a supreme court of nine justices who by a 5-4 decision can wipe out 50 state laws 31 state constitutional amendments or not the framers never intended for that to happen i am sure of that i believe the framers of the 14th amendment never intended that either but the court is doing what what human institutions do accrue power Mm -hmm. and it's in it's an institutional thing that happens over time and it's you know brutus in anti-federalist 15 called it back in 1788 89 when they were debating about you know the constitution he said the court is going to become the death of our country because they're going to do this little by little. This is exactly what he said. Over time, no one's going to notice it until all of a sudden they have this power. And we're like, hey, how did that happen? Too late. And everybody just puts up with it.
1: Right. Well, and and you have some of the justices like Gorsuch who's very famously against the administrative state and you know some of these things, but at the same time we still have these nine justices who I mean look at going back to what we said all of the drama and the you know 24/7 news coverage for President Trump's three appointees. I mean and that was in 2016, Scalia's open seat was the number 1 or or at least at the very top, voting issue for people. Well, why? Why should the Supreme Court have that much power to determine who we're voting for for president? That is never what the founders intended.
2: No, it's supposed to be the weakest, and that's what Alexander Hamilton, your favorite founder, yes. said. He said that the judiciary would be the weakest of all branches, with neither force nor will, but only judgment.
1: And he intended well, and I love him for being such an idealist. But I think <laughs> that Brutus was correct in in that vein, and and I think then where we go from here, and everybody's question in the next segment that I want us to address is so. What now? I mean, obviously, court packing is not the answer. We don't just want to put other justices that now will side with every whim of political uh, legislative intent. We don't want to have a judiciary that is runaway. We don't want to have the nine-robed uh, monarchs that are up there uh, just continuing to say that. So follow the Constitution. Yeah, maybe. Follow the I Constitution. Don't know. Yeah, you know, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but this is where we need statesmen instead of politicians and judicial activists. Absolutely. But that's great theory. How do we get there? We're going to talk about that with Mike We have Donnelly. two minutes to figure that out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we come right back with more on Just the Truth. Welcome back to Just the Truth, and it is already our final segment here, but definitely tune into to Just the Truth, well, every uh, Monday through Friday, but especially this Monday when we are celebrating Independence Day, and Mike Donnelly is going to join me for a very special episode of Just the Truth where we're going to be talking about our founding the Constitution, not constitutional law. So, Mike, in this last segment, um, we've kind of previewed, I think, okay, here's all of the problems. So... Now what? I mean, do we just have a Supreme Court that says, OK, we're just going to scrap all of this ridiculous precedent. We're going to go back to the beginning and we're just going to undo everything and start from scratch. I mean, what what can happen now? And what should happen?
2: Well, can you imagine the Supreme Court saying, OK, let's just forget the last 125 years and start new? <laughs> uh, I can't even imagine. Writer's
1: headline would be hilarious, though.
2: <laughs> no, it, I, it's just not possible. <laughs> right. Okay. Um,
1: yeah, the practical reality—it's not going is not to happen.
2: happen. I mean, people have relied on these things for for, for a century. This and idea, and a lot of, of them
1: are good. I mean, we still have some, you know, some protections in terms of you know some things that are there. And you know, yeah, you're a bit, but you know, we I are mean, still it, it, here yeah. together, speaking truth. Occasionally, That's a good
2: thing. occasionally, maybe more than occasionally, the court will come out with a good decision based on these, these substantive due process things. But again, I prefer to to go to my state legislature. <laughs> And, and decide for myself and my state, are we going to do this or are we going to do that? What are we going to do? Yeah, and, and, and that's not have the court how the founders weighing, intended they it. They did. And not have the court weighing on everything, like whether a cheerleader's Snapchat picture violates the Constitution of the United States or not. Um, and uh, so how do we fix this? Well, I said, you know, the Constitution. And, and here's the other thing. Okay. And look,
1: by the way, look at how thin this is. It's
2: really not right? that thick. That
1: is not if – you, if you go – my my – Backpack and every law student's backpack is weighted down with all of the books that you have to read and just volumes and volumes of this is the constitution, that's the operative. This is actually the text. It's yeah. not that hard.
2: Right. Yeah, no, exactly. It's not. It's actually very accessible. Pocket. Um, but uh, the analogy I want to make is that, you know, okay, I'm a guy and I'm actually the kind of guy who doesn't mind asking for directions. In fact, <laughs> I think asking for directions is very efficient. Um, and, you know, like, oh, I made a wrong turn.
1: So he's a unicorn
2: is what he's saying? Made a wrong (laughs) wrong (laughs) turn. How do we go? Well, but most people, like, they don't want to admit it and denial. And so they'll go down the road for miles and then they'll get lost and they won't ask for directions. Okay, people, we made a wrong turn 100 years ago. Are we going to admit it? Are we going to turn around and go back in another direction? Hello, justices? I don't know. But Congress can do something about it.
1: That's a very, very interesting yeah. uh, solution. In which, fact,
2: may I read the Constitution?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Because, you know, this is just the truth.
2: Article 3. The judicial power of the United States is vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may, may. from time to time, <clears throat> ordain and establish. The judges hold their offices during good behavior for a lifetime. Okay. Then it says um, in Section 2. In all cases affecting ambassadors, public ministers, consuls, and those in which a state is a party, the Supreme Court shall have an original jurisdiction. In all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. Okay, okay. which means Congress could get rid of every single federal court, and they have actually done this before, back in the day, way back. Uh, they got rid of all the circuit courts and reconstituted them because the... Democratic Republicans didn't like the Federalists, and they wanted to get rid of them. But they couldn't do it to the Supreme Court right. because the Constitution wouldn't allow them.
1: Right, so so only the Supreme Court is required by the Constitution Correct. because of that word may.
2: May. Well, and the power to create is the power to destroy. So power, Congress has the power to create the inferior courts and can destroy them. But it also says, with law and fact under Section 2, and with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. So Congress has the authority to instruct the Supreme Court as to law and fact, in my view, as I read the plain... Meaning Mm -hmm. Now, the Supreme Court doesn't like that. And in a case called Bernie v. Flores, they actually said, no, Congress, we decide how to interpret the Constitution. You don't. This was actually in the context of religious freedom. And I don't like that case, but we we can talk about that another time. Okay. (laughs) But at any rate, but I think Congress has some authority here. Congress could jump in here and say, hey, guys, no, we don't like substantive due process. But does anybody have the political will, the political courage to, to attempt that?
1: Well, that's that's ultimately the question, because if you look at where Congress is today, if you look at even the state legislatures, everybody is focused on something totally different than actually solving the problems that need to be solved, because these are the things nobody's going back and actually reading the Constitution. When is the last time, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer love to stand up there and say the Constitution, this and that. But have you ever actually seen them read it? And, and come out and say, oh, this is the proper authority under the constitution that should be regulating this process, here's what we need to do. And this is where if we weren't so divided as a country and it wasn't just about the necessity of both parties keeping each other in power, because the Democrats need the Republicans, the Republicans need Democrats, right? And this eternal clash, then they would actually have to come together as statesmen and women and solve real problems.
2: Well, yes, and that would be wonderful if they if they would do that. Um, you know, we've been fighting these battles from the beginning—the federalists versus the anti-federalists—and and these are important issues. And I, I don't, I don't, um, uh, you know, have any problem with people having passionate opinions for or against. You know, I think we need to debate them. But this is a structural problem. We we need to debate this um, because the, the future of the republic is at stake. The republic is. Struggling, and there's lots of reasons for it. We need to understand what those reasons for, are. I think the federal government is way too powerful today. It has become too powerful. We've caused that to happen by passing amendments like the 16th Amendment, which gives them the power to put their hands in our pockets and take mm-hmm. our money anytime they want. We passed the 17th Amendment, which basically took away the states a state's voice by popular election of senators. And the 14th Amendment, due process, substitute due process, lets the Supreme Court do whatever it wants, whatever it can reason its way to with a 5-4 decision. How are we going to get this back? The Article Five does allow us to amend the Constitution. I think that mm-hmm. could be done. You know, can we get 30 states to uh, call for a constitutional convention, and then can we get something through a constitutional convention, that and then get ratified. three quarters of states to ratify it? That would say, hey, Supreme Court, no, you don't get to rule over us anymore. Mm-hmm. Wow. That'd be cool. That'd be great. We need that. But
1: but do we have the political will of people who have enough backbone, who are in positions of authority, to do something like that? And I think it's important what you said, that this is a structural problem. Because when we talk about being originalists, when we talk about being constitutionalists, that doesn't mean that we have to actually like... All of the amendments that have been passed or if you're an advocate for repealing, for example, the 16th or 17th Amendment, that doesn't mean that I don't like the Constitution. It means that we understand the principles of America's founding, which is what we're going to talk about on Monday with the Declaration and America's founding principles. We are principled constitutionalists and we can always create a more perfect union and we can make sure that because our founders gave us Article 5 and the ability to course-correct and actually have structural uh, items that we can correct and say this is not good. We can go back in and do that. And well, let's that's not forget we've done it before. It used absolutely. to be
2: illegal to sell beer and wine and drink it.
1: See, well, and we there repealed you go. <laughs> it. Yes, there whether goes. you like to do that but or not, that's that's what we have to do. And so this is so important to not only understand the Constitution but understand how we can preserve and protect America's principles.